Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24 this evening. In our evening service, we have been looking at some of the parables of Christ. And tonight, we'll actually be looking at three parables of Christ. We'll look at Matthew 24 and 25 and, and highlight three different parables. But each of these parables, they come from what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. As Jesus taught uh, these parables, Matthew 24 and 25, while he was atop the Mount of Olives, hence the Olivet Discourse, and he was speaking privately to his disciples in regards to his second coming. Each of these three parables, they work together to teach really one main truth, and that is the importance of being faithful in light of Christ's return. Everything seemed to get started back in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus began talking about the temple being destroyed and the disciples asking when this should happen. There are three questions that they ask Jesus back in Matthew 24 and verse number 3. And notice what it says in verse number 3 of Matthew 24. And as he, and this is speaking of Christ, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They ask three questions. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And what shall be the sign of the end of the world? The following teaching is what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. And if you look at it from there on, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's read all the way through chapter 25. Jesus doesn't take a break. There is no little point of narrative where it kind of lets us in that it's something else is going on. It is Jesus nonstop from that point forward. It says in verse number four, and Jesus answered and said unto them, and there begins the red lettering. And that's the Olivet Discourse. I will admit that the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, are some of the most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. Some people think that everything contained within this discourse has already happened. It's already done. It's already been fulfilled. Specifically, in A.D. 70, when Roman armies came and destroyed the temple and just absolutely ransacked Jerusalem. On the opposite end of the spectrum are some who seem to think that today's newspapers are the key to understanding what is being taught here in Matthew 24 and 25. People will scour the daily newspapers and look for the news of wars and rumors of wars, famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. They'll look for signs from the heavens, such as the sun being darkened or shooting stars flying throughout the sky. They'll look for these things that mirror some of the many pieces of imagery mentioned within these passages. And of course, people are convinced of this, that everything that is happening here in Matthew 24 and 25 is happening in today's world. They're convinced of this because there is never a shortage of news reports that appear in the news similar to what we see happening here. Now, others seem to think that the Olivet Discourse, it contains some sort of a code or a series of hidden codes which offer hidden answers to the disciples' questions, which I read to you back in verse number 3 of Matthew 24. And as a result, almost in every single decade, you have some genius who cracked the code of when the Lord shall return. Interestingly enough, 
If people would actually read the Bible, they would find that Jesus emphatically denies the possibility of anyone knowing when these things shall be. He says in verse number 36, notice what it says. Matthew 24 and verse number 36, he says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Six verses later, down in verse number 42 of Matthew chapter 24, he says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Two verses later than that, in verse number 44, we read this, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Then again, in verse number 50, the Bible says, The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. And then finally, in the next chapter, in Matthew 25 and verse number 13, the Bible says, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, all three parables that we'll be looking at this evening all emphasize the absolute impossibility of knowing, of anyone knowing, other than God the Father, as he says in verse 36, my Father only knows the time or the day when this is going to happen. All three of these parables emphasize the impossible, impossibility of knowing the day or the hour of Christ's return. In other words, Jesus purposely didn't make it clear regarding the timing or the day or the hour or the minute of his return. He left no room for speculation and he left absolutely no room for sensationalism. And as a word of encouragement for those who really wanted to have all the answers, Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse number six, because the disciples came to him and this was one of the questions, when, when is this all gonna happen? What does he tell them in Matthew 24, verse number 6? He says, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. See that you be not troubled, he says. Jesus may not have given us the specific timing of his return. But he's also given us no reason to be frightened or concerned regarding some of the horrific events that will come in the future. So then, what is the purpose of this discourse? There is so much we're not told. But what we are told is to remain faithful until he returns. And Jesus tells us three parables that cover every possibility. So let's begin by looking at the first parable, and it is the parable of the two servants. Jesus teaches this parable of two completely different servants in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. One is a faithful servant, one is a wise servant, the other is evil, the other is unwise. The true character of the evil servant is found out when his master goes away for a season. He convinces himself that the master is not going to return anytime soon. And therefore, he can do whatever he wants without any sort of accountability. Follow along in your Bibles as I read this short parable. Matthew 24, beginning at verse number 45, I'll read down through verse number 51. Who then is a faithful and a wise servant? whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. 
Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now as we've seen, in all of the parables of Christ that we've looked at so far, the contrast between the individuals that we've seen is incredibly drastic. There are polar opposites that he usually describes as he's describing two sets of individuals in almost every single parable that we look at. The, the, here in this, in this parable, it's no different. The wise and faithful servant, he understood that his master was going to return at some point. He left, yes, but there was going to be a point in which he was going to return. And he treated the time as an opportunity to prove his level of devotion, to prove his level of responsibility to his master. Whenever it is that he was going to return, he was going to make sure that his master would find him working and diligent when he returned. So he wanted to make sure that he was doing all that he could. He knew that he was going to have to give an account at some point for everything that he did for the entire time the master was away. So he wanted to make sure to really impress his master by everything he was able to accomplish once his master returned. It didn't matter if the master returned early or late. He was going to find this faithful, wise servant patiently fulfilling his duties. The evil servant had the opposite mindset. He looked at the master's absence as an opportunity to slack off, as an opportunity to just party, as an opportunity to just get away with whatever he wanted to. He neglected all of his duties. He did whatever was pleasing in his sight. He really looked upon his situation and the lack of accountability that he had, and it just got him excited. He was thrilled with it. There was no one to keep him in line. There was no one to make sure that he was getting up every single day, that he was faithfully doing his job. He truly embraced this idea of freedom and no dependence on anyone. And it's, it's the idea of when the cat's away, the mice will play. Man, did he embrace that. When the master suddenly returns, the faithful and the wise servant, he's rewarded. He is rewarded beyond what he ever imagined. He is immediately promoted to the highest position and honor. The faithful servant, he is given privileges that are similar to the master. This pictures the eternal rewards that believers shall receive as we reign with Christ in his kingdom one day. The Bible describes us as believers as being joint heirs with Christ and we will be glorified together with him. The evil servant represents the self-indulgent unbeliever who has identified with the church and pretends to be serving the Lord. The truth is that this unbeliever has absolutely no love for God and does not eagerly look for Christ's return. In fact, he doesn't believe that Christ is going to return at all, or at least not at any point in his lifetime, so there's no need and no concern for him to get busy doing what he should be doing. His lack of faith emboldens his evil behavior. And much to his surprise, when the master does return suddenly and a whole lot sooner than what he ever anticipated, the evil servant is just caught red-handed red and he's caught doing absolutely nothing. His true nature is found out and the punishment that he receives is as severe as the reward of the first servant was as glorious. Notice what he receives in verse number 51. It says in Matthew 24, 
This is the reward of the evil servant. It says, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says he is cut asunder, which I imagine would be quite painful. And unlike what magicians do to their assistants, this would be fatal. There is no coming back from this. Oh, come on. You can laugh a little bit. All right. He's at least going to feel it in the morning. Okay. Too much. Sorry. Sadly, though, the Bible says that is not even the end of this evil servant. The verse goes on to say that after he dies, then the pain really begins. Because after he dies, he is then condemned to eternity in hell. It says, he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This language at the end of the verse, it's clearly, clearly speaking of hell. In fact, the expression where it says weeping and gnashing of teeth was a phrase and an expression that was very familiar to the disciples because Jesus has used this already at this point many times to describe the eternal sorrow and the eternal suffering of all the souls that are in hell. The evil servant's cynical attitude about his master's return was a picture of unbelief. And as Jesus stated in John chapter 3 and verse number 18, he says, He that believeth not is condemned already. This is an unbeliever, and the Bible says he is condemned already. And then this goes to show how serious a sin it is to scoff at the promise of Christ's return. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4, it speaks of this. It speaks of those who were scoffing at the idea that Christ shall return. It says there, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. What he says, the Apostle Peter, is that there's coming a day, maybe we're there, where people are going to look around and say, yeah, you've been talking about Christ returning for ages now, and guess what? He's not here. Much like this unwise servant, they're going to be acting the same way, saying, you know what? That's an old wives' tale. There's no such thing as Christ. He's certainly not returning. We can live as we want. And they're going to be caught red-handed doing nothing in their unbelief, and as this unwise servant found his portion where he was cut asunder and then condemned to hell, the unbelief is going to condemn them forever. The very same grace that saves us teaches us to look forward to Christ's return. Listen to what we are told in Titus chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're also told in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 37, it says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Christ is sure to return because he has said so. In the book of Revelation, Jesus repeatedly said, Behold, I come quickly. The certainty of Christ's return is one of the secondary lessons of this parable and the other parables that we'll look at in a moment. Philippians 4 verse 5 tells us that the Lord is at hand. Christ promised to return and not one of God's promises has ever failed. He is going to return. 
God has never given us a reason to ever doubt any of his promises, so there should be no excuse for us to become lazy, for us to doubt that what he said about his return shall not actually be fulfilled. Over and over in Scripture, we're taught that we should be ready, that we should be prepared, and we should be expecting this to happen at any moment, that we should be obedient, therefore, knowing that he could return today. We're expecting it. Then we should then, therefore, be as this wise servant. We should be loyal. We should be busy. We should be like the faithful servant who was obedient even in his master's absence. May we be found faithful as this wise servant was found faithful. The second parable that we'll look at is the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter number 25. Now, these two parables... It may be separated by a chapter division, but there is no real interruption between the two parables. The one really follows the other by design, and it is really important to read it this way. The two parables, they really go hand in hand. And what we'll see is that they both emphasize the same key lesson, just different aspects of the same key lesson. The parable of the two servants... It teaches us that we shouldn't think that Christ will delay his coming, but that we should be ready for his return and obediently working, expecting his return at any moment. The parable of the ten virgins, it reverses the point, if you will. We should be ready for Christ's return at any moment, but we also shouldn't be caught off guard if he does delay. We're always to be ready. These two parables, I think, really should be taught back to back because they complement each other so well and teach a balance to what our expectations should be as we look for Christ's return. Now, we've all heard the stories about those who are convinced that they've figured out the day in which Christ is going to return. We've heard about the extreme cases. These people seem to make the news where People are so confident in their beliefs and they've run all the calculations and they've pinpointed the exact day in which Christ shall return based on some crazy mathematical calculations which somehow they've formulated from studying the Bible. And so they have gone to the point where they have sold off their homes, they have quit their jobs, they have liquidated all of their assets, and they've traveled to a specific location, most of the time a mountaintop, where they believe Christ is is going to physically return. And it's honestly crazy how often this happens. And every time it happens, these people are disappointed. They're discredited. They're disillusioned and honestly, deservedly so. This is why Jesus specifically forbids us to do such things. And this is why I went through and read at least five verses where he says, no one knows, no one knows the time or the hour when he's going to return. The very point of these three parables is just that. Of course, we do believe that Christ's return is quickly approaching. But that still doesn't mean that we should seek to set dates and pinpoint his arrival. Jesus made it crystal clear that we will never know the time or the day that he'll return. So there's no point to think that you can somehow try and outsmart what Christ has said or somehow be smarter than God and elevate yourself to the level of God to now you also know along with God when he is going to return. 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 10 tells us really that our, our need as Christians is to be diligent, to be faithful, regardless of how long it takes for Christ to return. It says there in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, 
It says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And the point is that whether Christ returns this year or whether Christ returns a thousand years from now, our responsibility remains the same. And that is to remain faithful and obedient to Christ. This is what true readiness and preparedness looks like. It is completely opposed to for lack of a better word, the lunatics who sell everything they have and move to the mountaintop thinking that they are the only ones who have figured out what Christ said no one is going to figure out. Christ doesn't want us sitting up on a mountaintop idle, twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing for him as we await his return. This is not what faithfulness and obedience look like. Jesus told the parable here in Matthew 25 of the ten virgins to illustrate the importance of why we need to be prepared in case his coming is delayed. Follow along in your Bibles as I read the first 13 verses here in Matthew chapter 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh. Now, what this parable is describing is a day is is day one of a multi-day wedding feast wedding feast in these days in new testament days often lasted several weeks sometimes it lasted up an entire week the 10 virgins who are mentioned would also be bridesmaids and the festivities would really all begin when the bridegroom arrived and the bridesmaids, what the custom was, the, bride, the, the bridesmaids, the, the virgins here, they would go and they'd meet the bridegroom as he came into the city and they would escort him to the festivities, to where the, the wedding celebration was taking place, to where the bride was awaiting him. And so this is the scene that is, that is described here. And these bridesmaids would come to meet him in the streets of the city or the village at his destination. And they arrived with oil-filled lamps. But in this case, the groom was very late. Now, we're not given the reason for the delay. But the groom doesn't arrive until very late. And some of the bridesmaids, some of the virgins, it says, were not prepared. Only five virgins were wise enough to bring oil for their lamps. They all have lamps. 
But five of them were expecting that the lamps were going to be useless because they're thinking the bridegroom is going to arrive during the day when the lamps are not going to be necessary. Five of the wise ones, they bring oil just in case the bridegroom delays and comes at night when they're, need, they're going to need to trim the lamps and use the light from the lamps to lead the bridegroom to where he needs to go. Only five virgins were wise enough to do this. Five were foolish and brought no oil. And the one thing they had to do, the one thing they had to do was to make sure that they could lead the bridegroom to where he needed to be. And if it happened to be at night, the one thing they had to make sure of is to have oil on hand to light the lamps. Five of these virgins, the Bible says, were negligent and brought no oil for their lamps. Now, perhaps, again, they were hoping that he would arrive at a point where it was still daytime and daylight was, was the sun was still shining and the lamps wouldn't be necessary. But either way, this was their only job. And five of them dropped the ball. As soon as it was known that the groom was on the way, and the Bible says they basically fell asleep waiting for him. And as soon as it was known that the groom was on the way, the foolish virgins, they wake up from their sleep, see that it's the dark of midnight, and began to panic. And notice what it says in verses 8 through 10. It says, And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Since they missed his coming, the Bible says, they were excluded from the wedding feast. They had every opportunity, every opportunity to be prepared for his arrival, but they wasted their time and effort during his delay. And as a result, they were not prepared when he arrived. When they begged and pleaded to be allowed entrance into the wedding feast, the reply of the groom is chilling. In verse number 12, it says, But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. It is a very simple parable, this parable of the ten virgins. It is a simple parable with a very simple explanation. Jesus is the coming bridegroom. No one knows when he will return, and it will probably happen later than when most expect. Either way, we must always be prepared. The longer that time passes, the more we should be watchful and prepared for his return. Now is the only time that we can prepare for his arrival because his sudden arrival will mean that it is too late to prepare. If you're banking on preparing, the moment you hear him coming, it's going to be too late. You're not going to have enough time. Those who are not ready and prepared when he returns will be completely and eternally shut out of the wedding feast. Now, the third parable we'll look at here this evening is the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. Uh, the lesson of all three parables, I mentioned this, they're all linked together. They all give us a full understanding of what it means to be faithful as we wait for Christ's return. The parable of the two servants teaches us to be waiting expectantly for Christ's return. The parable of the ten virgins teaches us to, be, to, to wait patiently for Christ's return. And the parable of the talents that we'll look at now teaches us to be diligently working as we look for Christ's return. And in, in contrast, to those who sell everything they have and move up to the mountaintop where all they do is sit and wait for Christ to return, 
faithful believers are to plan, but they're also to be diligent to work until Christ returns. There is nothing wrong with planning for the future. Don't get me wrong. We should be planning for the future. In fact, Jesus encourages us to plan for the future. In Luke chapter 14 and verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You should plan. You should make all the plans that you can, but understand that your plans are not going to be the same as God's plans. The parable of the talents is all about faithful believers planning for the future. Now follow along in your Bibles as I read, beginning at verse number 14 here in Matthew chapter 25, and I'll read down through verse number 30. Matthew 25, beginning with verse number 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here is that same phrase again. The idea of the parable is that while we wait for the Lord's return, we are to prepare for that day by diligently working for him. The previous two parables taught the expectation needs to be coupled with patience. This, this parable here teaches us that whether Christ returns sooner or later, he should always find us busy. You could break it down really to, to three words. If you want to summarize all three of these parables, that we as Christians should be watching, waiting, and working. If you like alliteration, that's perfect for you. We should be watching, waiting, and working. A wealthy man 
leaves for a far country, leaving his three servants in charge of his affairs. Each servant is given a responsibility in keeping with his own character and his own ability. One is given five talents, one is given two talents, the third one is given one talent. The wealthy man knew how much each servant can handle, and that's why he gave the one five, he gave the other one two, he gave the other one one. He knows how much they can manage. He expects them to be faithful stewards of his resources. Now, two of the three men faithfully set out to work for their master, and they fulfilled their duty while he was away. Not knowing how much time they were going to have before he returned, these two servants embraced the responsibility that was given to them, and they quickly got to work trading and investing. Both servants ended up doubling the master's initial investment. The third servant did absolutely nothing. Look again at what it says in verse number 18. It says, but he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. This third servant took advantage of his master's absence and spent his time really doing whatever he wanted. Maybe he was nervous about losing everything. Maybe he was waiting for the market to turn around. The truth of the matter is that regardless of what he was thinking, he was negligent and he was lazy. His lack of responsibility made sure that he would never see an ounce of profit. We're told in verse 14 that the master went away on a long journey. So this servant had plenty of time. As he had received the talent, went and dug a hole, buried it in the ground, he had plenty of time to change his mind. He had plenty of time to think about what he did. And he could have thought, you know what? A lot of time has passed and I've done nothing at all with that talent. It's sitting in the ground. I know exactly where it's, where it's at. Maybe I should get up and do something about it today because if he returns, he's not going to truly find me happy. He had plenty of time to think about this. He had plenty of time to turn things around and to get busy before his master returned. But he did absolutely as little as possible. When the time to give an account of what he had done with that talent came, he wasn't ready. He was not ready. Now, as we see the master deal with the first two servants, the profitable and the faithful servants, we find him to be an extremely generous man. Notice what it says in verses 20 down through verse 23 again. It says, And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord." These two servants are rewarded. This master, he rewards them by giving them greater authority. He gives them increased opportunity. He gives them a place of joy and a a position of favor. The reward of these two faithful servants is clearly a picture of heaven. So many people sadly mistake heaven to be a place of boredom, to be a place of tedious activity. But the truth is that heaven is filled with exaltation and honor and endless opportunities for service and the greatest joy of all, everlasting fellowship with Christ. This is what the first two servants received. 
And notice what happened with the third servant. Notice verses 24 and 25. It says, Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. This unfaithful servant tries to deflect the judgment that he deserves by claiming that he was just absolutely paralyzed by fear of his master. He's just absolutely in awe and just absolutely terrified at what his, his master might do or might think of him. And so that thought apparently rendered this man unable to do anything at all because he knows his master to be cruel, to be harsh, to be over-the-top demanding, to be unethical as he reaped profits from, labor, from the labors of others. He plays this game really of blame shifting. It wasn't really my fault. I know you're a terrible man. And so because of how harsh you are to everyone else, that is why I didn't bother with anything because I didn't want any of that to come down on me. So really, if anyone's to blame here, sir, it's you. Which, of course, none of this is true at all. Even if it had been true that his master was some horrible, cruel, harsh person to deal with, it was still no excuse Notice how the master responded in verses 26 and 27. It says, His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. So the master kind of plays along here. He says, okay, yeah, if I'm as cruel and as harsh as you say that I am, what sense does it make for you to take what I gave that long ago and just bury it in the ground? What sense does that make at all? If, if I'm as horrible as you say I am, you should have at least taken that talent and put the money in the bank where it at least could have collected a little bit of interest, but now you give me nothing. Clearly, the claim that this servant was paralyzed by fear was a complete lie. The real problem was that this servant was flat out lazy. He had no fear. He had certainly no respect for his master at all. The punishment of this unprofitable servant is similar to that of the unwise servant in Matthew 24 and verse 51. If you remember, he was the one who was sawed in half. Notice what the punishment is for this unprofitable servant in verse number 30. It says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, based on the description of the unprofitable servant, it is clear that this picture is an unbeliever. He falls into the same category as the unwise servant and the five foolish virgins. Each of these three provide for us a clear picture of careless unbelievers. They are arrogant. They are completely indifferent towards God and his word. They are disobedient to the truth of God. They are self-willed in their behaviors, and they're unfaithful in absolutely ever, every moral duty. In each of the three parables, the result is nearly the same, that when the master returns, the unbelievers, every one of them, are all found unprepared. The result is nearly the same when they're all found unprepared. Their lack of faithfulness is exposed. Their guilt cannot be covered. Their guilt cannot be explained away. And the punishment is basically similar across the board. It is terrifyingly severe. It is, eternally, it is eternal condemnation for all three. Now, on the surface, each of these parables seem a little different. They each 
paint a, a different scenario. One shows the foolishness that Jesus will not return anytime soon. The next shows the foolishness of presuming that he will come soon. And the third shows the importance of remaining faithful regardless of when Christ returns. As different as each of these three parables are, there are many similarities. All three speak of the inevitable return of Christ. He is going to return. He has said he's going to return. There is nothing for us to doubt that he is going to return. All three speak of the inevitable return of Christ. All three speak of the inevitable reality that judgment awaits those who are unfaithful and unbelieving when he returns. And all three encourage everyone to be prepared. Now, all three describe the contrast really between faithfulness and unbelief, wisdom and foolishness, being ready and being indifferent. In fact, as you look at those characteristics, you find that those seem to be defining characteristics that distinguish those who are Christians and those who are just claiming to be Christians. There is faithfulness and there is unbelief. There is wisdom and there is foolishness. There is being ready and there is being prepared and there is just outright being indifferent. A person is not a true believer if he has no real expectation of Christ's return, if he has no eagerness to meet the Lord, if he has no love for his appearing. Therefore, all three parables, they're really linked together to give us one really powerful lesson. And here's the lesson. No one knows when Christ is going to return. Therefore, we all must be ready for his return, which could be at any moment. So the three words I want you to remember tonight, three words, keep watching, waiting, and working. Watching, waiting, and working. And be faithful, be obedient as you do so. Would you bow with me in prayer this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the lesson that we've gotten here from these three parables. Lord, we've just scratch the surface on what these parables talk about as we've quickly gone through them here this evening. But I'm thankful, Lord, for the differences and the similarities that each of them speak of. And I pray that as we have, uh, Lord, just joined them all together here tonight and, and looked at the similarities and looked at even just the, the differences, Lord, that we've understood how important it is to be watching, waiting, uh, Lord, and working diligently for that return date. We don't know, Lord, when that is going to come. It's not up to us to know. It's just up to us to remain faithful and obedient, Lord, for when you do return. May we be the, the wise and faithful servants, Lord, in, in every situation, every scenario, that we are found believing, that we are found expecting, we are found, Lord, and looking ahead to that glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is with joy that we are able to, to look at your word. It is with joy that we're able to anxiously rest on your promises because we know that not one of your promises shall ever fail. We know, Lord, that you are going to call us home. We know that you're going to return for us one day. Thank you for your word. and thank you, thank you for your faithfulness and your devotion to us. May we return that, Lord, by demonstrating our devotion and faithfulness and our belief in you and in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.